Good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors on staff at uh, Coe Brookline. John 1, 35 through 51. Um, to kick us off, just a question, a raise of hands, um, and it involves food. Uh, who here has been to Sam LaGrasse's downtown? Okay, I'm disappointed in about 50% of you. Okay, uh, but the other 50%, Good job. Uh, Sam LaGrasas, uh, I remember going to this sandwich shop early on when I got to Boston, so years and years and years ago. Um, it was really hyped up uh, as like this really good place to eat. And I would, I would like, before, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go try Sam LaGrasas. People would always be like, ooh, uh, because it just had that reputation, right? And so I don't remember who I went with, to be honest. Um, but early on in my time in Boston, I went to this sandwich shop and um, I got a sandwich and they specialize in kind of pastrami sandwiches. And it was, it was phenomenal. Right? Like the, the pastrami is, is sliced perfectly, it's tender. The, the cheese, it's not just like cheese on top of the sandwich, but it's kind of melted into the sandwich. And uh, the mustard is not overpowering, right? It actually complements the ingredients pretty well. And the bread is like perfectly toasted. And so it's, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing sandwich shop. I totally recommend you go. Um, and so I went, I tried it, it was great. Um, over the years, after talking to some people that go frequently, trying different sandwiches, I kind of settled in on my order right? Pastrami Traveler, no tomato, extra crispy. Shout out to Stefan. That's his order. That's where I got it from. And so this restaurant, it's amazing, right? And I remember, um, like, I rave about restaurants. I tell people, I, I like food. I like sharing good food with people. And so I'm sitting there with a friend years ago, three, three or four years ago, that has lived in Boston for like 10 plus years. And I heard that he had never been to this restaurant. I was like, first off, how dare you? Who do you think you are? And second off, like, you have to try it. Like, you have to come and try one of these sandwiches. It is so good. It is so incredibly good. It is one of the best sandwiches I've ever had, right? It says world's number one sandwich shop on the, the outside, which is totally not self-promoted at all. That's totally legit. I was like, you have to try it. And this guy, he was a little too nonchalant for my liking. I'm like, eh, maybe one day, I guess. I was like, what are you, what are you come on, man. This is going to change your life. This sandwich will change your life. And so I pester him for a little bit. I don't remember if it was a few weeks or a few months, but he finally agrees to go. And so we plan the trip, which actually, if you haven't been there, to give you credit, it's only open during the weekdays, which makes it a little more difficult. We plan this trip, and trip, it's downtown. It's like two miles away. Uh, get off at the Park Street T-stop and walk a few blocks because it's kind of tucked behind the common and turn the corner, and, and there it is. Sam LaGrasas, the big flag. If you know the logo, it's, it's an old-time fellow with kind of a top hat, and he's holding a pastrami sandwich. He's got his pinkies up. Like, this is legit, right? And we go in, and we order our food. We sit down. My friend takes his first bite. And I can just see it in his face, and I can hear it in the pause. I'm just like, oh, I get it now. Like, that is, that is good. That is a good sandwich, and it came to, it, like, it got to a point where, like, my words, my descriptions could not convey the greatness that is Sam LaGrasse's pastrami sandwiches. They couldn't do it. Like, at some point, you all or my friend, they had to experience it themselves. To fully understand how good it is, you had to experience it. And friends, Christianity, Jesus, if you didn't know, is far more important than pastrami sandwiches. But the invitation that Jesus has for us all in this passage, it functions the same way. Never would have thought 
years ago in my seminary training, I'd somehow connect pastrami sandwiches with, with, you know, the opening of a sermon in Jesus. But here we are. He invites all of us into something so sweet, so spectacular, that unless you experience it, you can't really understand it. You have to partake. You have to kind of dip your toe in the water to really grasp what it is that he's inviting us into. The invitation that he has for you is far sweeter than you can imagine. It's far better than a pastrami sandwich. It is far more fulfilling than you can imagine. Right? And the invitation is not into organized religion. The invitation is not just to come here on a Sunday. And the invitation is not to a set of rules or you have a way of life or a vibe or even a worldview. The invitation is to come and see this man, Jesus, what he's all about. And in doing so, you figure out what the deepest longing of your soul is. And over time, you realize that Jesus fulfills this deepest longing because its deepest longing is Jesus. And so our main point for today is super simple. Jesus is inviting you to come and see. Jesus is inviting you to come and see. It's not super profound, not overly challenging, not even that memorable, but just like the people in this passage that we just read about, if you take him up on that, if you accept this invitation, it's going to change your life. For everyone in this room, Christian and non-Christian alike. And for those of you who aren't Christian, I, I, I want to challenge you with this. This passage, this invitation that Jesus has, is very specifically for you. The invitations we see in this passage, they're given to people who don't believe in Jesus yet, who don't know Jesus yet. And admittedly, it seems they believe pretty quickly, right after the invitation is extended. But Jesus invites them. He says, come and see. He says, follow me. And this isn't something that he invited people into just 2,000 years ago. Right, but I believe he extends this invitation to you today. So we'll look at two things. First, we'll look at the invitations. And then we'll just look at what are you actually invited into. The invitations and what you're actually invited into. To catch you up really quickly, if you're newer or missed previous weeks, um, we've been in the book of John. This is our third week in the book of John. Uh, and the first two weeks was really the first half of chapter one. Uh, it's really all about the identity of this man, Jesus, which the whole book itself is kind of about the identity of Jesus, but really the first half of chapter one is all about who is this Jesus. And John describes him as the word of God, who not only was the word of God, but was God, and that everything was made through him and for him. John describes Jesus as the light, and that darkness has not overcome the light. Jesus is described as the God who puts on flesh and dwells among us. If you're here last week, he's described as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin. And so really early on, like the first verse, John is really concerned, really concentrated on you getting a clear picture of who this man, this Jesus really is. And the thing is, the way that John describes him, the way the rest of the Gospels describe him, the way the Old Testament describes him, and the way the rest of the New Testament describes him, he cannot be just a good teacher. He cannot be just a wise man. He cannot be just a prophet. He is so much more than those things. 
So again, Jesus is inviting you to come and see. First, we'll look at the actual invitations. We'll look at two things, kind of two subpoints under this. Invitations for you and invitations from you. Invitations for you and invitations from you. The first part of our passage, John the Baptist, again, if you're here last week, he kind of says the same thing. He says, behold. If you remember, we talked about that last week. That's look. Look in awe and wonder. Look, the Lamb of God. If you remember John the Baptist, he has quite the following. He could be a little bit of celebrity status in that kind of region. He has tons of followers. He's been baptizing tons of people. He has lots of disciples. And two of his disciples in this moment were here beside him, and they hear him say this. And they immediately go and follow Jesus. And now, I think this says a lot about Jesus and a lot about who he is, but I actually think it says a lot about John the Baptist too. Right? That, that as we talked about last week, his life and his ministry pointed to something greater, to someone greater. And these two, two disciples clearly understood this message. Right? They realized that John the Baptist had a message that was greater than himself. And so when their rabbi said, behold the Lamb of God, I don't think they necessarily knew who Jesus was at this exact moment, but they put the dots together that this person is who our rabbi's life is centered on. This person is who John the Baptist was pointing to, was anticipating. And so they follow him. And Jesus kind of caught them stalking him a little bit. He turns around and he utters his first words recorded in this gospel. He asks this question of the two disciples, and he asks this question of us today. He says, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you after? John, again, who wrote the book, he kind of has these moments. You'll pick up on it as we work through this book over the next few months, that like there's something deeper than what's just being said at the surface. Like, yes, Jesus is essentially saying, like, why are you following me? Like, what do you want? I've been watching you for a few blocks now, like looking in my rearview mirror. Like, but it's deeper than that. Like, you can see it in the way the, the, it's, it's worded and his follow-up to them. And in the rest of the passage, that it's almost as if he's peering deeply into their soul and saying, what does your soul desire? What are you seeking? And so just as he would ask his soon-to-be disciples, God himself would pose the same question to you and to me. What are you really seeking in life? This is a question that extends far beyond Christianity and Christians in the Bible. I think the answers are contained in those things. But it's not like Christians are the only ones asking this question. And it's not like non-Christians are the only ones asking this question. But Jesus asks you this question and invites you to search yourself. And if I have to be honest, I think some of us are going a million miles an hour the way we even stop to think about it. Whether it's work, kids, school. If we stop for half a second, maybe we would realize we're actually kind of avoiding this question. If we slowed down long enough, we would realize the things that we're trying to fill our time with, the things that we think we're seeking aren't actually that fulfilling. Actually don't provide that much meaning. Whether it's marriage, kids, that particular degree, that particular home, that particular job. 
Here's the thing. If those are the only things that give you meaning, and they aren't backed up by a God-given purpose, someday you'll find yourself meaningless. The harsh reality is family can be taken away in an instant. Jobs, they fade away. Just this week in my community group, there are two people that are in the process of getting laid off or don't have a job. Your money ebbs and flows with the economy. These things provide temporary meaning. They're temporarily meaningful. And what I'm not saying is don't find joy in being a father or mother. What I'm not saying is don't find joy in even stewarding, stewarding your money well. Or don't find joy in being a doctor or whatever it is. But I am saying when we look to these to provide us with meaning and purpose in a holistic sense, that is to say, I only find my identity in motherhood. I only find my identity in fatherhood. I only find my identity as this teacher. And these things start to become really crummy gods in our lives. John Mark Comer uses the language of gospel of blank. So where are you seeking good news? Where are you seeking the gospel in your life? Is it in the gospel of family? The gospel of career? The gospel of money? Gospel of sex? Jesus invites us to ponder this in our own lives. And Andrew, the disciple who followed them, and the unnamed disciple who many commentators think that this is likely the John that wrote the book, he says, what are you seeking? And they ask kind of like an awkward question, like picking up on that stalker vibe a little bit, like, where are you staying? And he extends another invitation. He says, come and see. And just like there's greater depth than the what are you seeking, there's greater depth than the come and see. Another big theme in this passage we see is, is people sharing about Jesus. People sharing about this Messiah that they've encountered. I use the phrase invitations for you and invitations from you because we see people sharing and we ought to do the same. Just a question, a raise of hands. How many of you are here because someone in some way, shape or form, whether it's a church leader or a family member or otherwise, shared about Jesus with you? Raise of hands, yeah. Pretty much everyone in this room. So you all just proved a key point, sharing about Jesus still works. Right, it's not some outdated concept from the 40s and 50s. And like maybe door-to-door is a little weird nowadays. But I find it funny that two of the disciples in this passage, what's the first thing they did after they heard about Jesus, after they encountered this Jesus? The first thing. Well, they went to a Starbucks and read a bunch of books about theology, of course. No, the first thing they did was go and tell other people. They went and told other people about this encounter and this man that they just met. Andrew goes and tells his brother, Simon Peter. And Philip later goes and tells Nathaniel immediately. And this is the theme that picks back up throughout the entire gospel of John. The woman at the well, John 4, we'll hear about this in a few weeks. What's the first thing she does when she learns that Jesus is the Messiah? She goes and tells the whole town. And if I'm honest... If I'm really honest, I was talking to someone about this before service. From the Western church, the American church, all the way down to Cobra Brookline specifically. I'm not going to call out Cobra Brighton. 
all the way down to Code Brookline specifically, I would say this is something as a church we don't do enough or we don't do that well. Sometimes we don't do it at all. We say, God isn't opening the right doors. We say, my workplace won't allow it. And I'm not negating the complexities of of that. Like if your workplace has a rule, it might be best to respect that rule. I don't know what that's like. It's pretty easy for me to share about Jesus with my coworkers. But what I think the issue is, when we really boil down to it, when we really get down to it, when we're saying things like that, is that we don't have a heavy heart for the lost. That's a problem. I preach it to myself here just as much. That's a problem. Why? Not just because the Bible commands us to share our faith, but because Jesus' whole life and ministry was centered on the lost. Jesus' whole mission, his entire reason for coming to earth, as he himself stated in the Gospel of Luke, was to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And what we see in this passage is him doing exactly that. The question then is, are we? Are you doing that in your life? Do you have one, two, three people you know that don't know, don't believe, haven't heard about Jesus? And are you praying for them regularly? Are you engaging with them? And don't make the mistake of thinking like they probably already heard. This is America, right? And they probably already heard. It's not true. I haven't met this man, but I heard about a man from another pastor. Grew up on Cape Cod. 70-something-year-old man. Never heard the gospel. I don't know the specifics of how it happened, but he walked into a church that day on the Cape, heard the gospel for the first time. First time. Ever. 70-plus years in America. Never heard the gospel. Guys, I promise you I'm preaching myself here too. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, why are you calling me lost? Please know it's not derogatory. It's not saying anything's dumb or anything like that. But this is what it means when we say that. It's not just that you don't believe what we believe, or it's not just that you don't do what we do, so you're lost. No, it means that I believe you're lost because you're missing out on a life-giving, joy-filled relationship You're not missing out necessarily on a religion. You're not necessarily missing out on a set of rules. And a joy-filled, life-giving relationship with the God who not only created everything you see, from the leaves of the trees to the dirt in the ground, but he created you. And he knit you together in your mother's womb. And that he invites you into a relationship, one that you currently don't have He offers you meaning and purpose and identity that is far better than the one you have right now. I'd put my life on that. He says, what do you seek? But he knows you. He knows your heart of hearts. And I would put this across the table to you. At the end of the day, what you're truly seeking is God. The question is, will you figure that out in this life or not? He says, come and see. Follow me but you haven't taken them up on it yet. 
This leads into our second point. That was the invitations. The ones he has for you and the ones that ought to come from you. Like I said earlier, Jesus is inviting us into something specific. It's not just a religion. In this passage, he invites people into something deeper. Like broadly, yes, he's inviting people to just, you know, on the surface, come and follow him as a disciple, uh, learn his teachings and kind of learn who he is. Right? But we see him inviting these people into something particular. We see particular things happen after they accept these invitations. So we're just going to work through the rest of this passage, not a bunch of sub points, but I'm just going to hit a few things. Look at verses 41 and 42 with me. He, Andrew, first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Simon Peter was invited into a new identity through Jesus. At the other end of Jesus' invitation to Simon Peter was a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, as anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, you have an invitation to become someone and something completely new. Completely clean before God. A completely clean slate. And don't miss this little name change by Jesus. Right, you know who changes names in the Bible? Only God. Remember in Genesis, God in the Old Testament is the one who does this. From Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel. John again is making sure that it's crystal clear. He's trying to paint a very clear picture of Jesus as not just some man, but God in the flesh who dwelt among us. So Jesus invites you into a new identity. Move along to Philip, verse 43. What does Jesus invite Philip into? At first glance, you might say nothing. Right? He just says, follow me. But look very closely. Verse 43, what does Jesus do with that first, second, uh, that first sentence in the second half of, first half of the second sent, sentence? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. What you might not know, what I didn't know until I started studying this deeper, is that uh, rabbis, religious leaders, teachers in that day, they would never go and find their own disciples. They would never go and seek people to follow them. The people would come to them and say, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? Can I sit under you and you are my teacher? Can I apprentice under you? Now, this might seem like a small quirk or something insignificant, but I think it shows us that Jesus invites us into a relationship where he's the one pursuing us. Where God is the one pursuing us. This would be a radically different understanding of what it means to relate with God to the Jewish people back then, to the Israelites. And for us today, it ought to be a great source of comfort because if you were left to your own devices to pursue God, I am convinced you wouldn't do it. I am convinced I wouldn't do it. This is what Jesus means when he says he came to seek and save the lost. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, I ask the question, what does it mean for you to think about the fact that God is pursuing you? Maybe you're like, eh, 
Tyler, if you knew the things going on in my life or you knew the things I've done, I don't, I don't think he's pursuing me. Or you know the things I believe. I don't think he's pursuing me. But 